Hi everyone, just a note before we start. This episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault. The first thing my mother told me as a young girl was, don't even whisper, because the birds and mice could hear me. She said, the most dangerous thing that I had in my body was my tongue. And then uh, we called up this number and they were the Christian missionaries and they told us there was a way out, which meant that we had to walk across Gobi Desert from China to Mongolia by foot. Eventually what happened when I was born in North Korea, I did not even know that I was oppressed. And if you don't know you're a slave, how do you fight to be free? Hello and welcome back to Floodlight, the podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective. We're committed to helping to eradicate what's still a huge problem that affects every one of us. Around 50 million people are enslaved across the world, across all sorts of demographics, locations and societies. But it's a problem we can solve together. That's what we're committed to doing at The Collective, raising awareness and bringing like-minded people together who are as passionate about tackling this crisis as we are. Thank you so much for listening in. For the final episode of the series, we are delighted to be joined by Yeonmi Park. Yeonmi is a North Korean defector who has gone on to become a world-renowned activist and abolitionist. After fleeing from North Korea, she suffered at the hands of human traffickers in China, but has gone on to speak openly about her experiences and uses her profile to shine a light on this worldwide issue. Her story of survival is a harrowing but hugely inspiring one, and we can't think of a better guest to close our second season of the podcast. So let's get into the episode. So today, everyone, we are so hugely proud and honoured to have the incredible Yonmi Park. And um, Yonmi, you have such an incredible story and we can't wait for you to tell everyone a little bit about who you are. But just a little bit of, of, of background. You are a human rights activist. You are a prominent advocate. You've written a book all about your journey to freedom. And we are just so honoured you're here. So please tell everyone a little bit about yourself um, and where you came from. Thank you so much again for giving me this opportunity to share my story. Uh, I was born in North Korea, and then when I was 13 years old, uh, we faced massive starvation, and it really made us to make a decision what to do, uh, which meant that we had to escape to search for food outside of North Korea, and that led me to escape from North Korea at 13 in 2007 with my mother, and when we got to China, uh, that's when we both were sold as sex slaves in China. And uh, two years of my slavery, uh, I had a chance to get out of that life, which meant I had to cross the Gobi Desert into Mongolia. And then from there, I crossed the desert to Mongolia. And then from Mongolia, I was able to go to South Korea. And that's how I became free. And then Eight years ago, I came to America, and now I am an American citizen myself, and truly a free person. Wow! So, so firstly, you were you were trafficked in North Korea, and then again in China. So twice. 
So in North Korea, in a way, like there's really no vocabulary for mm. trafficking because nobody has any rights mm. or freedom. Like literally in North Korea, I didn't even have the vocabulary of words like human rights or liberty. There are literally no words for love in North Korea. So I had no idea. <laughs> and literally you belong to the state and your fate is determined by uh, what your ancestors did before you were even born. And then in China, I was actually human trafficked by the human traffickers. Mm. But in North Korea, it's more like state-sponsored uh, yeah. kind of you know, control. Mm -hmm. And you, thirteen is is such a young age. What do you, what do you remember about the circumstances of living in, in North Korea, and how did it feel when you were leaving? It must have felt like, the only kind of safe route out. Yeah, I, I it's that's the thing. Like a lot of times, I really do think that was some kind of you know life I had on a different planet. Mm. Because in the 21st century, North Koreans don't even know the existence of internet. I don't know if you have seen the satellite picture of North Korea at nighttime. They really don't even have electricity right now. Wow. Uh, so every day, my life was really like struggle to survive. I had to look for finding food all the time. And even here right now, I'm like not even 80 pounds because of like our organs and our bones were never fully developed because of a severe malnutrition they've experienced. And that's why North Koreans are on average three to five inch taller than South Koreans. And yeah, and then uh, it's not only that, like that's malnutrition is on one side how the state controls its population, but then they also use a fear like the first thing my mother told me as a young girl was, don't even whisper because the birds and mice could hear me. She said, the most dangerous thing that I had in my body was my tongue. If I said one wrong word that was not approving the government or the party, it was just not gonna kill me directly. It was gonna literally kill up to three to eight generations of my family, both my mom and dad's side. Even at the age of 13, if you're a child? Even age of two, no. there's no such a thing. Yeah, literally North Korea recently sent a two-year-old to concentration camp along with the family. Do you, I, I, so interesting to hear your story, Yomi. Do you worry now when you talk to us or to people about, you know, your situation, about what might, people might be hearing? Yeah, so uh, when you I to be careful. Yeah, I mean, I started speaking out against like, Kim Jong-un. Uh, I was informed by South Korean intelligence, national intelligence, that I was on the killing list of Kim Jong-un. And as we have seen that he was murdering his half-brother at the Malaysian airport. I so I have to avoid a lot of countries that I cannot go to. And mm. North Korea actually has a consulate in the UK, London, by the way. They have a relationship with so many countries in the world. There are so many countries can just easily capture me and then transfer me back to North Korea as a hand. So yeah, every day I need to really worry about where I go and where not to go. But you feel safe in, in America, that's your new home. 
Yes, yes, America so far, uh, I've been very fortunate to be living here in the safety and I've had no harassment by the North Korean officials here. Which part of America do you live in? I live in New York City. We both lived in New York for a while. We love that city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you were saying you have a little, you have a child. Yes, I have a boy. Uh, oh. He's five years old, turning six in a few months. Uh, he's uh, like half North Korean. Like I couldn't believe it when I had him in the hospital. The hospital gave, gave me his birth certificate. It says that like, mommy was born in North Korea and dad was born in the U.S. And in North Korea, like when we were in China, like there are 300,000 of North Korean women in China are trafficked. And most of them are, of course, women. Uh, when they get raped by Chinese people, they send back to North Korea. The first thing the regime does is a pregnancy like, test. If a woman is pregnant by this rapist, they tear the baby because they do not believe in the mixed blood, mixed race, especially what they call the American bastards, their mortal enemy. So she is an impossibility. And like I made a baby that was half North Korean, half American. What a blessing. <laughs> what a blessing. <laughs> so do you mind talking a little bit about um, the journey from North Korea to China and and how, if you don't mind sharing the details of how you were trafficked? So, uh, by the time when I was 13, uh, as I said, we we really, like, my daily life was eating, you know, grasshoppers, dragonflies, eating plants. And uh, even that was scarce. It was very hard to find the food. So, we had to be creative to find ways. And that was, fortunately for us, was looking outwards. And at nighttime, I wasn't leaving the border town of North Korea. I was able to see electricity lights coming from Chinese stuff. And that's when we thought, maybe if we go where the lights were, we could find a bowl of rice. And that led my sister to escape first. And then she left me a note to find her lady. And then uh, my mother and I later found this lady. And she said, oh, I can help you to go to China. And don't worry if you go to China, they will have food, they will feed you, and you will find your sister. Uh, with that simple promise, we gave him a question, why is this lady out of nowhere helping us? Uh, turns out she was a human trafficker, so she sold my mother for around $65, and then she sold me around over $20. The reason I was more expensive than my mother was because I was a child virgin and a lot of Chinese men in China love taking child virginity away. So they were willing to pay a lot more money than my mother. Uh, once we crossed the frozen Yalu River into China by foot, uh, of course there were guards like with a machine standing there, right? It's impossible to escape the border, but this lady drive the border guard so we were able to cross the river. And then we were got when we got to the Chinese riverside bank, that's when I saw the first thing was that my mother was being raped. Uh initially this man wanted to rape me, but I was literally like fifty pounds and literally and I was like flying away and my mom offered herself. And then they sold us separately. 
because they want to make more money. So there was no, like, no, my, not my sister, there's nobody there. I was separate from my mother. And the other thing is, though, like, being sold as a sex slave in China to a man is kind of not the, it's kind of the best thing that can happen to you. Literally, sometimes they buy us, you know, brothers. And in the brothers, they put a girl and they don't even put the windows and they don't want to even spare time to feed these girls. They literally rape them like 500 times a day and then they drug them most of the time and then they die out within a few months. And from disease and malnutrition, they can just buy another girl for a few hundred dollars, right? Uh, but then there was another demand where it's happening because of Chinese one-child policy. I think a lot of people would know about the one China policy that led many, many Chinese people to abort the girls and kept the boys only. So now there are more than 33 million men in China cannot find wives, cannot find their mates. And these men are angry and lonely. So they started buying North Korean women as their sex slaves. So that's how we end up in China. Uh, when we go there, the problem why we are not protected is that Chinese government does not view us as a uh, defectors or as a vulnerable, you know, they don't follow Geneva Convention. So they literally capture North Korea if they find and then send them back to North Korea. It's like catching a Jew and sending them to Auschwitz to get killed. So the North Korean women are extremely vulnerable and that's why my mother and we both faced this human trafficking in China. How many people escape North Korea a year? So that number, <laughs> it's, a, it's impossible to know because North Korea mm. is the most closed nation in the whole world. And especially nowadays after Kim Jong-un took over, the escaping became almost impossible, like literally not in one year. <laughs> Like the, that number be, went back to zero in like recent history because Kim Jong-un literally buried landmines in entire border, put the electrified wire fences in the end. It's like the whole country became a concentration camp. Wow. So he literally told the people like, don't let single ant cross the between China and North Korea. Uh, so by my time, that was where Kim Jong-il's time where his father uh, the second Kim time and the, the border security was more lax. That's why most of the defectors escaped in the North Korea were in the 90s and then 2000s, like late 2000s, that's when I escaped. Uh, so during that time, there were a lot of North escaped and they made China and we estimate around 300,000 are in China trafficked and sold to this day. And current new defectors, Almost is like they don't come out. They cannot come out anymore. This is why it's called state-imposed slavery, because the <laughs> whole country is enslaved. And and how long were you um, in China before you made it to Mongolia? I was there for two years. I uh, from thirteen to fifteen. And then when in Mongolia to America, what, what age were you when you reached America? So uh, from Mongolia, I was went to South Korea, and then when I was twenty one, I came to America. 
yeah. How, how did how did you escape the traffickers in China? So this is a thing. <laughs> there were two years of hellish life, mm. but eventually what happened was we found a North Korean women defector in China, and then she said like there is a way out of this, and then we asked like how can we get out of this because we did not know like. Like in North Korea, I've never seen the map of the world. Mm. I've never seen the picture of actual Americans other than the, you know, the like screw posters that drew looks like monsters of what they were, like the white people, right? I never knew the world like this ex exists as of China and North Korea, but this lady said she met Christian missionaries come from South Korea who were rescuing North Korean defectors. And then uh, we called up this number and they were the Christian missionaries and they told us there was a way out, which meant that we had to walk across Gobi Desert from China to Mongolia by foot in, 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 in 2009. And then if we make the journey in the Gobi Desert safely to Mongolian side, we have to go find the Mongolian guards and tell them that we want the asylum to go to South Korea. Uh, chances of making that journey is like not even 1%. Was it you and your uh, mom? And then we had a few other people in our group. They were all North Koreans. These Christian missionaries made up us as a team. Wow. So we, as a team, and then we had a little child toddler in our team. We crossed the desert together from China to, you know, to Mongolia. And then we were made it in the desert. We didn't get killed. We didn't get eaten by the snakes and animals. Uh, and then Mongolia, the soldiers, we begged them to help us to go to South Korea. Many attempts later, they did help us eventually. And then they helped us to go to South Korea as a refugees. So that's how we got out of China through this Christian missionary's help. Wow. And how long did it take for you to cross the desert? Whole journey takes. Uh, I mean, there's many facilities we go to after that, so it's like many months. And then when we go to South Korea or so, there's like two months of interrogation. They have to really verify. I get a spy, mm. you know. Well, I think literally a lot of times make us to go through lie detector detectors, yeah. right? Because we could be easily spies from North Korea, or we could be not even North Koreans. Mm. So two years of intense interrogation and then three months of re-education. Literally, we're there for the first time telling us that Americans are not bastards. You yeah. know, the world is a great place and they are the democracy. And then they literally tell us that Kim, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il is not God. They go to bathroom. You know, for us, like, wow. I literally thought the Kim Jong-un could be my mind. Like, mm. I thought he had a supernatural power like God, that he could move the mountains and he can hear my thoughts. I was even afraid to think I was so brainwashed. And in this three month period, they tried to reprogram us and make us to see, you know, what happened to us. And then, like, so total six months that journey we do in South Korea. Yomi, you're so incredibly brave. I can't imagine how it must have felt when you finally found refuge in South Korea and having that support from people who could finally understand everything that you'd been through. Um, what was 
what was that process like and how did you kind of rebuild from there? And, and like you just said, it's it's more than rebuilding. It's just a total re-education of the world and how different countries work and what a new life might look like for you. Um, how did you get back on your feet and kind of regain this incredible sense of independence and empowerment? Yeah, I think it was, a, it's beyond anything. It's a, it's not just like learning a new culture coming from North Korea to South Korea, right? The absence of the words like I, uh, they, I got to South Korea and they were like in this class, I was a 15, I was a teenager and they were like, oh, okay, let's break the eyes in the room. Maybe we can go around to introduce ourselves. And I did not know what introducing yourself meant because in North Korea, like being an individual is the worst thing you can be. You can't talk about yourself, right? And then like, oh, it's not that hard. Maybe you can tell us your name, what you like to do, what's your favorite color. And I did not know what my favorite color was because in North Korea, my teacher told me that my favorite color was red because it was my revolutionary color. And when even I describe myself, I always had to say we in North Korea. There's no such a thing called I. And then literally, uh, I had to learn about freedom. It's, it sounds not cool, but then when I learned about freedom in, in China, I literally thought freedom was like wearing jeans, watching K-dramas. And then I did not know that freedom meant like freedom of thoughts and any beyond that. So I couldn't believe it. Like freedom was a responsibility. If I chose to do something, I had to be responsible for my decisions. So it was very painful. It was really, really hard to learn to be free for the first time. And I do remember the first few years, it was so hard. Like if nobody killed me in North Korea and they gave, they gave me food, I would like even willing to go back to North Korea. And I think that it was like that easy to adjust for like free life in the in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about like it's actually it's really hard to be free, and mm-hmm. that's I think that's the most honest I've ever heard it explained to me from a survivor of human trafficking because it's such a it's such it must be such an extraordinary thing to finally attain after so many years, but as you say, it's like a privilege to be free um um, and and it's a responsibility to be free so it's incredible to think that freedom for you is is that's your understanding of it and is is that still the the case when you think about your life now or is it changed over the years because of all you've gone through yeah i think i learned about freedom more and more i'm still discovering more i think it's also true it's not only this uh responsibility of freedom is, but it's also called discipline. Right. Uh, when I got to America, it was very confusing, right? Oh my God, like literally people here, some people like, oh, I'm free because like, therefore I can do anything I want. Right. <laughs> and freedom without like discipline, it can be an anarchy. And so every day I'm learning the new definition of freedom. And of course, it's a lot of joy in being a free person but then it also comes with a lot of hard work and diligence so do you you think that you I mean what I'm jumping a bit here but do you think you wanted to use your voice 
I mean, why is it that you 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 want to stand up and tell your story to the world? Because it's really remarkable what you've been through. Oh, I I think so. I came out of North Korea, and not long ago, world like this existed. And then when I was going through my, you know, slavery and rape in China, I literally lost my faith in humanity. Like in South Korea, I remember when they were saying everything that I believe in North Korea was a lie. They said, you know, everything. Just think about everything that you were learning in North Korea is a lie. And I started thinking, so how do I know what you're telling me is not a lie? You know, like really comes down to where I don't know what the truth again. I don't believe in anybody. Any men that I met in China was my rapist. Like, how can I believe in anything again? Uh, that really changed when I realized that most of people did not know what was happening in North Korea. It's almost like a Holocaust. When it was happening, a lot of people back then didn't have internet. They did not even really know what was happening. And when I knew if people learn about what's happening, we can change the future. And uh, the one book that I read that made it turn my life around was reading uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Mm. Uh, up until that point, like I really resent the dictators. You know, I thought what happened in North Korea is a hundred percent the fault of this evil, evil Kim family. That you know. This man wants to be a god and wants to use us to maintain the status and enslaving us. But then what I realized that during the time when the king was taking offer, there's so many majority, good silent majority in the fear of losing their family and their lives, they kept silent. And that's eventually what happened when I was born in North Korea. I do not even know that I was oppressed. And if you don't know you're a slave, how do you fight to be free? And that is a different degree of oppression that you're talking about. Like, it's the total state of control by the government that you don't even know that you're slave to the government. So you're living in a Truman show, right? You don't even know this is a show anymore. And on, on a totally different level, um, but often when Yuzhi and I spend time with survivors in safe yeah. houses here in the UK, we often find that on a different scale, but people don't, often know that they've been trafficked or that what's happened to them is not okay and that's this it's a big part of the problem and a bit big part of the education as well yeah it really is i think that's why i thought this is the only way we can change by the raising awareness and a lot of people i came when i came to america it was really interesting to see because most of americans thought at the time that till this day, it's somehow the, you know, the slavery ended, right? I mean, America's in a lot of slavery history and other countries. So Korea, South Korea had a slavery. Every, it was a part of our history, but they don't know that slavery is continuing to this day. Uh, that really made me really, I couldn't believe it, that children don't learn this in schools. And... My son doesn't get this, learns from his teacher at school. And even though I'm an actual survivor of modern day slavery, so little awareness is up, mm. going around in the world. Uh, you're, you're, I'm smiling because yeah. you're, you're speaking to the converted. It's one of Eugenie's kind of core passions and a key kind of strategic pillar of the anti-slavery collective is not just awareness, but education and how are we getting 
modern slavery and human trafficking as a topic back, back on the agenda in schools. Um, but Yomi, I know you've written a book in order to live, and I'd love to hear more about more about it from you. Um, it's it's so important to have kind of evidence based stories and accounts on the horrors of modern slavery. It's such an important part of the kind of learning process for other people as we talk about raising awareness. You know, people need to hear directly from survivor voices. And another question to you would be, how can charities like ours or people like you and I and the people that we talk to and are constantly advocating for, how can we help make sure that your voice and your accounts are heard and supported? I think it's a, it's a, this, I mean, slavery is happening in every corner in the world right now. And especially the countries like China, North Korea, that they do not have transparency. They don't have the good governance, right? I think what we can do as a collective is that first we need to educate ourselves. That's really the number one thing that we need to know how is it happening, how it's done, where it's happening and recognize these areas. And second is how do we solve this problem? Unfortunately, this problem can only come from not only through the NGOs, right? There aren't lot, many NGOs working on this issue. I only can speak for the North Korean issue is that there are these Christian missionaries to this day and non-religious prophets to this day are rescuing the effort. They go to China using the underground routes and rescuing defectors from China to free them. Uh, so that is anybody can get involved. But what to think about the global awareness campaign is, uh, as I said, North Korea's consulate is in London. <laughs> they have one in Sweden and Norway and so many other European countries in Spain and even in America right now, I live in New York City. Literally not that much down miles from my apartment, there's North Korean consulate and the UN representatives in New York City. Whenever the, the this like the UN assembly or government's meeting, they they talk about everything else to the animals' rights to climate change and everything in between. But modern day slavery is never part of agenda. It's not even mentioned in their agendas. Even though this is a, the mass scale crisis happening, there are millions of humans don't have rights and don't have freedom. None of these people are fighting for human rights. And the, my frustration as a human rights activist really come from meeting other people at the UN and State Department. There's like, a lot of my friends are like animal campaigners, right? And nobody ever go to them. Why do I need to care about dolphins and puppies? But literally they come to me, they ask me, why do I have to care about human rights? And I'm like, are you not a human being or something? Who do you think gonna fight for human rights if you don't fight for human rights as a human being? Like, do you think puppies are doing for us? Do you think that robots are doing for us? Like, we are the only ones can fight for human rights. But somehow, people don't view as a human rights crisis as something that is crisis. And I think this can come from the world leaders, the media. <laughs> I don't know how this can happen, but I'm so glad you're here in this space to fight with the media. Oh, well, you're me. I mean, it's it's definitely something that Jules and I have been passionate about since the day we st started this. You know, it's 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 all about raising awareness, raising the noise level, making it just louder uh, for people to 
even understand the facts as Jules said like people who have been victims of slavery might not know that they've been trafficked it's the same as people might not know that they're using um things that have modern slavery in them uh, whether it's food or clothes or whatever it is so it's all about education and cross-sector collaboration and working with all sorts of society so you know it's really important for us but also you know working with survivors like Jules and I you know part of our whole ethos with the collective is to always have a survivor voice at the heart of it and you know if, if any survivors are out there listening um on this today it's what would what would be your bit of advice to someone who who needs that guiding hand from someone who's been through it oh I think it's yeah it's a, in a way uh I launched like over the last like three four years when the pandemic hit I mean I couldn't go anywhere to talk about human rights issues in North Korea to anybody right and in a way you know living in this technologically advanced country I just could start a YouTube channel or going on social media so it's the in a way it's the easiest time to become an activist and to do this work and you don't even need to be an activist to do this you can just you know, so when we share these messages, you know, you can go share the link somewhere, you can send it to your friends or your representatives, you go to City Hall and talk to them about it. And so, yeah, there are many ways to get involved in definitely lateral commitment. And I think that's why, even though it's sad how much is not done for this issue, but also I'm very excited for the possibility of what can be if we come together to make this happen. That leads beautifully onto my next question. And Yomi, we like to always end with a moment of hope, which you kind of just shared just then. But, you know, it, it, this is such a horrendous topic and it can be really hard to kind of see the light sometimes. So we'd love to hear from you a story of hope or a moment in your life where you've seen that light at the end of the tunnel and you see a path forward, whether that's in your own experiences or in the kind of wider modern slavery movement? Yeah, I do. I get that a lot of questions. People say, you know, how did you keep fighting? Like, how did you not give up? And it's true, like, when I was crossing the desert or being raped at that age, uh, I did not know the world like this existed. I couldn't get, you know, everything come out of that darkness. But what I learned is, even after that, I got to learn about the human history and how we evolved, all of that. In a way, it, it is like, if you look at just like zoom it out, it's such a positive history. Like, look what we overcame. Even the concept of human rights is an invention of human engineering. It didn't have, we didn't have that for most of our human history. So the fact that maybe moments here and there we have a hiccup doesn't matter that it's not going to south. Really over the big spectrum, things are getting better. And I only would always believe that. So even though uh, there are many parts of the world right now, like I work, we do Human Rights Foundation in New York City and literally I couldn't believe it, more than 4 billion human beings do not live in free democratic societies. They live in a somewhat dictatorship and autocrat societies where these kind of things are happening. But uh, I think at least half of us are free. <laughs> and because of that, I think there is a hope if we look 
what we overcame. So this improbable modern-day slavery sounds so dark and overwhelming. I don't think this is another thing that we are going to eventually overcome. And, you know, it will be the story of the past. I, I, I really think what you've shared with us today is so um, integral in... Um, in in sharing a bit of, of something that was quite incredibly dark and 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 scary for you, um, that can maybe offer a bit of hope and light to people um, going through something um, who might be listening. Um, but I think what's important for everyone to know as well is that Yonmi's got a wonderful book um, which you can all access, which is all about um, her journey to freedom. Um, and now, as you rightly say, being an activist and anyone can be an activist and using their voice you know, getting out on YouTube, sharing links, um, putting the word out there that, that, you know, modern slavery exists and that you can overcome it. Um, and you can be someone like Yon Me who uses your voice to such an incredible power and um, beautiful, beautiful thing. So thank you for your time, Yon Me. Oh, thank you so much. Yon Me, thank you so much for sharing your story today. And unfortunately, there are so many others um, going through similar situations and it is up to us as a group as a community as human beings to raise awareness for this topic and do something about it and Yonmi your story is exemplary and thank you for your strength and for sharing with us today thank you so much our hugest thanks to Yonmi for joining us today and for so bravely sharing her story and thank you to all of the guests we've had on the podcast this series. We have so enjoyed speaking to each and every one of you. And last but not least, thank you to our listeners for your unwavering support. Remember, if you're interested in hearing more amazing conversations with people on the front line of the fight to end modern slavery, listen back to series one if you haven't already. The episodes are just as important now as they were when we first recorded them please visit our website as well as those links in the show notes below for more information about how you can help us in the fight to rid the world of modern slavery. It's a problem that affects every single one of us. Around 50 million people across the world are enslaved, across all countries and all walks of life. But we know that together we can do something about it. Floodlight is a stack production on behalf of the Anti-Slavery Collective. Our producer is Charlie Morgan. Our executive producers are Luke Moore, John Teague and Charlie Morgan. Thanks for listening. Floodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. <laughs>